Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. You are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. So, guys, how are we feeling? Feeling good. Pretty good. Feeling good. A little, um, a little, I don't know, worried. Trepidatious? Yeah, feeling something just weighing on me because the research that we've been doing for this episode we're about to record, it gets into the deep dark levels of your soul almost yeah you know whenever we go into an examination of history what we find is that although history is often portrayed as a concrete inarguable thing it's much more like a conversation and at times an argument between narratives not yeah. to mention you know, the other saying about history is written by the the victors or whatever mm-hmm. so a lot of revisionism going on mm-hmm. depending on you know the perspective that you're looking at yeah in, in the history of the exploration of where we come from, you know, of uh, the mysteries that surround the origins of humanity. And it always brings to mind one of my favorite William Faulkner quotes. Uh, He said that the past isn't over. It isn't even past. And I think we forget how often uh, history in the world we live in is a palimpsest. Uh, A palimpsest is just the Fancy word for uh, a thing that a lot of monasteries used to do when paper was very expensive and rare or they were using scrolls. Uh, they would – or vellum, I guess. Instead of buying more paper to write something, what they would do is they would erase what was written earlier and they would write over it. Yeah. And fast forward several centuries, uh, historians and researchers found out that it was possible to read the earlier copies, the the parts of history that had literally been overwritten through the tactile clues, just the impressions that the earlier pins or quills made on the physical paper. And a lot of times when we look at history, when we're exploring different versions of history or arguments, we're using 
in a, in a, in a very strange way. We're using clues that are like the indentations of those earlier stories on physical paper. We're finding references that don't make sense. We're connecting dots that have not been connected. And this is, regardless of how you feel about a specific case, this is one of the most important parts of historical scholarship. Absolutely. So today, we are, we're not just talking about history for funsies, right? No, no, no. Today, we are diving into one of the, I would say, I, I would say one of the most prominent, uh, one of the most prominent conflicts in historical narratives. And we are not doing it alone. We have with us today a very important person, uh, that exists within the narrative, uh, that we will be exploring. And I think the best thing possibly to do is just to introduce her mm-hmm. and then let her tell us about herself. Yeah. So let's do it. So welcome to the show, Tansy Bajent. Thank you. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Tansy. Why are you here today? So I'm here today to talk a little bit about um, what my father did and what he dedicated a lot of his life to. And that was the exploration of history and looking for new ways to view history, new ways to think about history rather than just believing the perceived views of the masses. Yes, in 1982, uh, Tansy, your father, Michael Bajent, wrote uh, a world-changing book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And earlier when you had reached out to us, this was um, this was thrilling for us because this is a book that even if people haven't read it or haven't heard of it, people are probably very familiar with the idea here. Um, we checked out a copy of the book and – this is, uh, if we're going to let the badger out of the bag here. Already? Uh, <laughs> we've got more than one bag. We've got, we, we're, we've got many badgers, right? Uh, this book focuses on the, uh, an exploration of what the Holy Grail in biblical lore actually was. And it delves into the early days of the Christian church. It delves into nothing less than the secret history of Christ. Yes, and specifically whether or not Jesus actually died when he, you know, historically died, uh, at least what the the texts say, and then whether or not he actually had a bloodline that continued on uh, in France, I believe, the Merovingian line. Uh, fascinating stuff. And um, Tansy, can you tell us a little bit more, more about it? Yeah, I mean, to start, really, you have to think about, you know, what what do you believe? Um, do you think that a Jewish man would have married, had children um, and attempted to gain the throne? Or would he have been born to a virgin, walked on water and risen from the dead? So I think when you think about history, you have to think about these things. The, the book begins basically with um, a priest called Sonia, who in 1885 took residence of a church at Rennes-le-Chateau. And he discovered something which amassed him a great fortune. And my father and two of his um, companions sought to find out what the source of his treasure was. This led him on a journey um, through history. And the question that I raised before, you know, what is your belief? That stimulated this um, this whole journey, really. He wanted to know the man behind Jesus. And in doing that, he looked at um, how we have translated some of the, the early texts and you have something called San Grael, which people translated as the Holy Grail. But if you move the G, it becomes San Real, which is holy blood. And that was something that my father did and explored through that, that actually Jesus could have had a child and that that child existed and his bloodline existed throughout history. Wow. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a quotation in the book, um, that, that follows this, uh, where, uh, one thing, one thing that the authors do, um, as, as you mentioned, Tansy, uh, Michael wrote this along with his colleagues, Henry Lincoln and Richard Lee. Um, they say, just as you said, that, uh, Sangral, Sangreal, uh, could translate to royal or holy blood and, the authors say in in this book, they say in itself, such wordplay might be pre- 
provocative but hardly conclusive. Taken in conjunction with the emphasis on genealogy and lineage, however, there's not much room for doubt. And they go on to explore some of the uh, blood-related lore surrounding the idea of the grail, the cup that caught uh Jesus's blood, right, becoming becoming the Holy Grail. And one of the arguments here is that instead this is, as as you said, Tansy, a, a bloodline. And I, I really appreciate the point you're making about the about the the actual belief system, which right? is more likely. I mean, right. to, like for a man to have married and looked, mm-hmm. sought some sort of influence and power, mm-hmm. or for some of these more mystical interpretations. Yeah, and again, so. it's about faith. It's about what which one you see as being, you know, the most tied to your belief system, I suppose. But it's interesting to explore both sides for sure. Um, so, what when you talk about him, the idea of him, you know, ascending to the throne or like having some sort of bloodline, what what does that look like? What would that actually functionally? What purpose would that serve? So. There is the thought that um, Jesus was from the sort of Solomon and David line, um, which were already entitled to the to the king of Jews and to that throne. And so when he was thought to have died or when he lived on, the plan was to um, assert that bloodline back onto the throne. So they had an entitlement to that throne. So his bloodline had an entitlement to the throne. And the plan was to protect that bloodline. And then you have these sort of secret societies that come up throughout history that were potentially bequest with the um the protection of this bloodline. Hmm. And the main one discussed in or at least one of the main ones discussed in the book is um a group known as the Priory of Sion, which is you know, had there are questions as to whether or not this group actually existed in the way that is uh, outlined in the book. Um can you talk a little bit about that and about some of the kind of questions regarding some of this history and whether we're looking at, you know, things that have been uh, gleaned from documents that were not entirely accurate or if this was more of a 20th century creation. I know a lot of that kind of came up after the book was published. And I know your father was working with information that was, you know, um, seemed to be accurate at the time. But where do you kind of land on, you know, what uh, what is and isn't maybe entirely accurate in the book? The thing is that at the time, it was 1982, and my father was relying on the information that was available to him then. But at the same time, he doesn't just make an assumption based on one piece of evidence or one, uh, you know, one document. He takes a multitude of documents and together creates this theory. Um, And so the Priory of Sion and the Order of, of Sion, they came about, you know, whether or not that they existed in the way that he described at the time, you know, there was actually the Mount of Sion back in Jerusalem, and there was a lot of links and coincidences that um, make it seem plausible that there was some kind of group. Um, and whether or not, you know, the dossier to secrets has been, more evidence has you know, changed or documents have changed. He didn't just rely on one aspect. And at the same time, you know, what he came up with was conjecture. There isn't any, you know, we don't have any solid proof of really anything that far back. So you have to just go on you know, bits of information that you have, tie it together and see whether what you come up with makes sense and is a viable theory, um, which he, he still believed and maintained at the end that it was. He followed that and also, you know, had the belief that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Um, and that came through with later books that he, he came back to. Speaking of, there are so many novels that your father wrote and about such a diverse topics. We were just looking through some of them about um, I mean, going back to a similar thing, the Messianic legacy, the temple and the lodge, when we get into Freemasonry, which is <laughs> something we'll jump into here in a moment, um, the Jesus Papers, Dead Sea Scrolls Deception, the Elixir and the Stone, which is specifically about alchemy and magic, seems extremely interesting. But, uh, you know, I have not read it for this interview, but that is definitely on my list now. Um there's all racing towards Armageddon is another one that I really want to talk about. Um, is it too is it too much to jump gears here? Well, no, I was just going to maybe say what what about all of these topics, these kind of like mystical pursuits fascinated your father so much? I mean, it seems like it wasn't obviously it is a diverse set of topics, but they all do kind of tie into this quest for the unknown and like, you know, some of the same things that drive us here on the show. I mean, growing up with them, what what were your perceptions of, of what uh, drove him to this, these kind of like quests, I guess. 
Well, I think what drove him to these quests was the pursuit of truth. He always used to maintain that, um, you know, you always need to ask questions. You always need to look for answers and you need to fear no one in your pursuit of truth. And so I grew up being very open to a variety of different ideas and not willing to just take something at face value. He was also very interested in experience. And so he gave me a copy of the Hermetica, you know, when it, um, a few years ago. And he just he was very interested in in the whole, you know, what what actually made up existence. Um, what was the truth of reality and what was the truth of sort of non-reality, the things that we can't see. And growing up with that and, you know, meditating from a young age was really interesting to me and has has changed my life. He felt that, you know, the most important thing was to, you know, not to take anything, I guess, at face value, not to just be led by what people tell you or what's written in scriptures and to actually experience for yourself. And I think that that drove his pursuit in all of his different books. And they all have that sort of the link to the mystery and the, um, the mystical. And uh, one thing that I, I, I really appreciate you mentioning uh, the emphasis on uh, your father's pursuit and his emphasis on experiential learning, uh, because he did travel widely. Um, and when we're thinking about journeys, this makes me think. You know, when I originally started reading the book, I thought. This is the culmination of years of research and work, but in a very real way, it was just the beginning of a journey for him because this uh, this book became internationally known and became the subject of a lot of debate and controversy. So I guess my, my next question would be um, something that I've been very curious about. After the publication of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, uh, what was your what was your father's journey in the public sphere like? Because he he spoke about the book, uh, he made appearances, um, he defended things, right? And I I was hoping that you could tell us in the audience a little bit more about the journey that he took and the and the path the publication of this book set him upon. So I guess the publication of this book was his first sort of real presence in the limelight and being in that position, he got a lot of, I guess, inquiries and criticism. And I think he had to very much sort of change the way that he, he presented himself, but he was always a very private man. He'd had a very difficult childhood. And so he wasn't averse to this sort of controversy and the negativity that ensued coming out with that sort of information what it did, I think, you know, they were all very taken aback by how successful and popular the book was and became. That wasn't his, you know, initial idea. They just, you know, it was a five-year project that they released and they had no idea that it would be such a success. And I think what that did was it, you know, authenticated him as a as an author and a historian and a researcher. And that led him into the realms of a lot of other books and investigating things and he was you know in my head he was very much a real life sort of Harrison Ford um character Indiana Jones Indiana Mm -hmm. Jones you know he in order to do a lot of the research you know he used to take us all around the world we'd go to Israel and Scotland and look at graves and churches and it 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 changed the way that he he was in his life he was a photographer before then and so to to be in that realm of of writing books of investigating of being in the public eye you know, it changed the way that he he acted and he was, um, and it made him more committed to pursuing the truth and the ideas behind things and the research behind it. Um, but he was a very private man. You know, he did he kept himself very separate because he received a lot of death threats. Your your father was a war photographer in Laos, I believe, during the Vietnam War, and I wonder how much that experience led him even further into this realm of wanting to question the truth and, and, or, you know, question what is presented as truth. Yeah. So during his time in Laos, he went to be a war photographer. But when he arrived, um, the two men that he was supposed to meet had been unfortunately blown up. So he took to um, photographing um, on his own accord. And through that, he saw some horrific sights and he was actually approached by the CIA and they, what they were doing at the time was they were taking and buying a lot of the photographs of war photographers so that they couldn't be shown to the general public. He refused to sell them. So he still has a lot of these photographs. 
And he also saw some things that um, were absolutely sort of stricken off from history that was were said would never happen. And he saw those firsthand. So I think that that realization that what you know the public is fed is not necessarily what is actually happening. And I think that led him into into his investigations of Holy Blood and Holy Grail and all the others that came after. Wow. Sorry, I'm just processing that. No, no, that's that's, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I kind of thought that's where you were heading when you were, when you were saying they tried to buy the photos off him because even now you hear accounts like on public radio of war photographers who, you know, like they're asked to turn their cameras off at certain times, you know, and only photograph certain things. So you really do get this skewed perspective of something as horrific as a war. And when it's managed by the people in charge, you really are it's, – it's a very easy way to be led astray into thinking what people want you to think – rather than what is actually true. And so I could totally see how that experience would lead him to really want to take deep dives into stuff they don't want you to know. Yeah, they know. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a very good point because although it was suppressed from the public eye at the time, uh, later evidence emerged that shows the U.S. conducted, at least just the U.S., without even counting European powers, conducted extensive illegal operations or black ops in Laos uh, where numerous mines still remain, active landmines, and Cambodia and Myanmar or Burma. Uh, this is not – these are not theories and I feel like it's very important to establish that for the listening audience. These are proven facts – uh, the most made-up thing about at least the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam was the Gulf of Tonkin incident. I think it's so cool and interesting that you kind of cast your father in this light of this, like, real-life Indiana Jones character because something that we're going to get to next is his sort of embroilment, I guess, with Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code books. And that character is sort of cast in a similar light. Uh, so I think we should talk a little bit more about that after we take a quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. 
Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Uh, Before the break, Noel said something in a series of phrases that I'm sure... uh, piqued the interest of the audience members there, and that is the Da Vinci Code. I guarantee you guys that somebody, several people probably were listening to the beginning of this interview and going, huh, that story sounds familiar. Yeah. That idea of a secret bloodline of Christ, uh, and it is. Protected by some sort of mystical esoteric secret mm-hmm, society mm-hmm. and for some reason tom hanks is involved well yeah i mean he's he's a really charming guy he's, he's, a, he's a good looking man he's involved in a lot of things <laughs> i think know. it's it's mostly his affect and he's just very generous uh with his personality i would i would have uh i would have enjoyed the da vinci code as a film i would have enjoyed it more if it had been tom hanks as david s pumpkins Oh, exploring it if only if right? only but <laughs> but we uh we we bring this up because this was one of the biggest controversies correct uh dan brown published this book in and, 2003 i want to say that mm-hmm. might not be correct but i think that is so decades later yes uh, holy blood holy grail is already out internationally known again it's this uh the subject of no small amount of controversy mm-hmm. right and it has many proponents it has many opponents and Dan Brown comes out with the Da Vinci Code and says – so people around the world go, hey, you based that off of uh, – <clears throat> maybe not quite plagiarized, but you based it off of Holy Blood and Holy Grail, to which Dan Brown replied, nuh-uh. Not just Dan, Dan Brown, the publisher, and it, it became a thing. And so our our first question for this uh, after that long – introduction with this to set the scene. Um, our first question regarding this, Tansy, is could you give us an account of, of how this transpired and and what actually happened uh, with the arguments that Dan Brown and his publishers were making? Yeah, so essentially Dan Brown promoted himself as a bit of a, a pseudo-historian and a lot of people felt that um, he was the one who'd done all the research for his book. Essentially, what he was saying is that he'd never really he'd never read um, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, or if he had, he'd only sort of dabbled with it. What transpired in court was that he had actually had the book open at the time of writing the central parts of his book. Lee Teabing is an anagram of Lee and Bajant. Um So that character was sort of based on the works, I guess, of the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and Lee Teabing takes the copy of the book off the shelf. What my dad felt was that this wasn't enough of an acknowledgement um, of his work that he spent five years um, you know, with others doing and that Dan Brown had you know, taken hold of this information and recast it and stated it as his own and didn't essentially say that much of it had come from the Holy Blood and Holy Grail. Gail Reebuck, who is um, head of Random House, also was there and she, you know, it was that she, he was actually suing the publishers, not Dan Brown himself. Um, they were also his publishers. And um, they essentially did everything that they could to bankrupt my father throughout it by hiring QCs and essentially trying to make him stop pursuing the case. What also came through was the fact that actually Dan Brown didn't do any of his own research. It all came from Blythe, his wife. His wife did all of the research for every one of his books. He didn't actually do any of them. So the judge commented that he was basically a passive observer in terms of the, the collection of that historical material. He just created the story around it. But unfortunately, because of a technical error that our lawyers made early on in the case, that ended up being a substantive issue in, in why we lost. But all, you know, the judges, especially in the Court of Appeal, held up the book and said the title is The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. It's quite clear that, that Dan Brown has copied you know, that, that aspect of it. And, you know, through that as well as we had the judge who created his own Smithy Code in the judgment. And he has since been considered a a very appalling judge and uh, uses his own bias to to pursue his own aims. So your father and Mr. Lee then appealed the the judgment, right? Yes, because of the fact that actually the, 
the original judge, Justice Peter Smith, in his judgment, it was very confused. And he made a lot of statements that suggested that my father was hiding money. And a lot of the, the reasoning behind his, his judgment was not actually based on, on you know, the evidence in the case. Um, we also felt that Dan Brown lied from the beginning of the case until the end. So he continually said, I don't know. I don't remember. And he didn't remember anything he'd done two years before. All of his work and all of his research was destroyed in a flood. So both of his computers were destroyed in a flood. But my father, who wrote the book you know, 20 years before, could recount pretty much everything that came about with writing the book. So we felt that the judge wrongly allowed that, you know, the fact that Dan Brown had sworn under oath, um, had lied under oath, and felt that that was a big issue. The fact that Blythe Brown wouldn't appear was a big issue. And the fact that we felt that it was quite clear that Dan Brown had used a lot of the information in the Holy Blood, the Holy Grail, and hadn't correctly attributed it to my father. And then that's why we took it to the Court of Appeal. And in the end, this really did cost your father, your family, um, a, a lot of money and well, and I'm what, sure yeah, emotional I mean, distress and yeah. just you know I can't even imagine drawing something like that out and obviously your father was one to stick by his guns and I'm sure he felt very passionate about defending his work uh obviously it wasn't necessarily about making a ton of money as it was kind of defending his name am I characterizing that correctly Yes that's right I mean he took the case before the success of the Da Vinci Code so he didn't realize the success that it would be it was it was actually just to be awarded the the necessary uh, connection to the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail and the fact that he had spent five years and um, with others writing that book. That was why he pursued the case. So regardless of whether somebody believes this uh this account or this exploration, uh regardless of whether somebody disagrees with uh, the ideas presented, right, uh, by Michael Bajant, uh, there is an inarguable connection between the Da Vinci Code and this book. We have a quote okay. that we'll read quickly here. This is, this is, in my opinion, the the heart of the hypothesis, summed up, okay? Perhaps the Magdalene, that elusive woman in the Gospels, was in fact Jesus' wife. Perhaps their union produced offspring. After the crucifixion, perhaps the Magdalene, with at least one child, was smuggled to Gaul, where established Jewish communities had already existed and where, in consequence, she might have found a refuge. Perhaps there was, in short, a hereditary bloodline descended directly from Jesus. This is like... The, there's no way to say that these are not connected. It just seems very, um, it seems implausible yeah. that an author like Dan Brown uh, could have, in a vacuum, written that kind of thing. One of the most compelling things that came out of the ruling was the the way the judge viewed the work Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And one of the reasons that it was said to not be uh, Dan Brown's work was not plagiarizing your father's was because your father's work was like this historical work rather than fiction. Yeah. So what they said essentially was that you can't copyright historical facts. And even those facts that have a shroud of creativity cannot be copyrighted. So they felt that what my father had done was he'd taken facts. He'd shrouded it in this creativity that then that shroud could not be copyrighted. It actually reduced copywriting law to basically things like imagery or completely unrelated sort of ideas that were very personal. It, it made it so that you could quite easily copy someone else's work if it was a sort of a general, a general creation based on facts. Wow. Just circling back a little bit about the controversial nature of this work, whether, you know, I mean, obviously making it, calling it nonfiction could potentially make it potentially more controversial than having it be fiction. Um, but there are, there were issues of, I think, the Roman Catholic Church banning the book in certain circles and, you know, calling for it to be retracted or in some way as a work of histor history, because basically it's, it says, it goes against their entire 
doctrine, you know, that Jesus Christ had a son and married and is a totally different interpretation of the way they would have us see that figure. I'm wondering that specifically, how, how did that manifest itself? This religious kind of zealotry coming at you and your family when this book was published? So my father received a lot of death threats um, when we were growing up and he felt he was you know, hugely affected by the strength of the sort of aggression of the church, really. They couldn't coordinate, the, they couldn't blend these two ideas. They couldn't see, you know, Christ being this, you know, real historical figure that could have had a, um, a wife and child and, you know, chose to purely adopt what the, they, they'd taken from their dogma and their doctrine. And so, you know, it was, I think, in AD 335 that Jesus was proclaimed as this godlike figure in, in, in Constantinople. Actually, if we go back in history, we, you know, we don't really have a, a full grasp of history. So what is sort of nonfiction and fiction, you know, whether, whether what he's saying is, is true or not, but it's just about understanding why he's created it and where it's come from. And I think what the church failed to see was that there could be a blend here that you could still see this this character of Jesus and you know all his spiritual teachings and the importance of that but still see him as a man whereas a, a lot of a lot of these people just could not they could not accept it and they felt that his work whether fiction or not incited so much interest and they just retaliated against that to such a degree that I don't think that my father was quite expecting it at the time because again, for him, it was, you know, it was conjecture. It was just a theory. And there's not many theories that can create that much stir. So we felt almost that they were taking, maybe they were taking a bit of truth from it. And that's why they, they really pushed against it. Oh, I was going to say, this also isn't the first example of this idea of Jesus having married Mary Magdalene or having had a relationship with her. There's, you know, the Martin Scorsese film, The Last Temptation of Christ, which was based on a novel from the 1950s by a Greek author that sets out this scenario more in kind of like a storytelling fashion rather than trying to claim that it's based on any kind of historical documents. Um, did your father ever consider that work at all when he was working on this or, you know, kind of was, I'm sure he was aware of it, but did that play in any way into his, you know, interest into seeking this out? I'm just wondering. Um, quite possibly. He, he, he did a lot of research around and would have known about all the different texts that were available. Um, he, he, he never, he never said that his theory specifically to him or to his, his colleagues was that Jesus had a wife. It was the, it was the bloodline that came from them. Yeah. And he does, uh, he does use uh, very careful language in parts of the book. Uh, when we read the summation of that, Hypothesis, you know, he says, perhaps there's indication, you know, at, at that point when, when the hypothesis is phrased, uh, he is not telling people what to believe. He's putting these dots together and then continuing an exploration. And Noel, I love that you bring up, uh, that this, their older beliefs, uh, evolving similar things because this goes back as far as, um, the 13th century when people were claiming that part of the Catharist belief was that there was an earthly Jesus Christ who also had a relationship with Mary Magdalene. Um, but when we, when we talk about that, we also have to remember, you know, this can seem controversial today in 2017, uh, but it wasn't that long ago when people were literally being murdered for saying anything slightly different from the official doctrine of the church. I mean, in, in the span of human history, that's like a, that was me snapping my fingers. <laughs> I forgot yeah. people can't see us. It's a blip. Well, and, blip. and things like that are still happening today. Um, not necessarily with the, with the Catholic church or, you know, uh, Christian organizations, but they are occurring today. That's true. And, uh, we've talked a little bit about the way the church reacted, but we know that many people in academia, uh, also reacted adversely to this. There were historians who said that, um, they had serious problems with the book or they felt that it was, uh, they, they felt that it was not doing due diligence to other things that they considered 
historical fact. Now, I do want to say at the top here that uh, Matt, Noel, and I are not historians, unless you guys had a – anybody have a wild weekend? I mean, I watch some great courses every now and then. <laughs> there we go. But we, we, we do want to – we do want to ask uh, how how did your father – react to the academic controversy surrounding this book or, or the criticisms that he received. So not just the um, ideologically based death threats, perhaps, but the, the secular conversations. So from the academic community, um, they what this, essentially his book was considered because it wasn't nonfiction or fiction. It, the way that they had read, written it was very different to how a lot of books had been written in 1982. You I, you had to do a sort of a set structure in order for it to be a nonfiction or a set structure in order for it to be a fiction. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to create this this story that brought in facts and their interpretation. And a lot of academics found that um, not to their liking. And a lot of historians were very critical of his work um, and the work of Ian Lincoln. But the thing is that, you know, my father was an incredible researcher. He was very intelligent. He was very intellectual. And one of the most, he is one of the most intellectual men I have ever met and most mystical. And I haven't found another researcher who has gone to the lengths that he went to in order to compile the necessary work for all of his books. He would go down caves. He would he spoke French and would read all sorts of documents. He investigated things to the nth degree. And it's easy for a person to criticize work, but to actually be the one to write it, to be the one to research it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of commitment. And what, all he was doing was presenting facts and an interpretation, a potential interpretation of what they were, he never tried to make anyone else believe what he found. He said it's up to everyone else to draw their own conclusions. And that was his response as well to these these other authorities who were trying to sort of contest the work he did. And he just he just stood by that. I want to jump into something that we kind of mentioned early on in this episode. Your father was a member of a group that has uh, experienced its own controversies and this is the Freemasons, uh, the Order of Freemasonry. He was, at least according to MasonryToday.com, he was a member of Lodge Economy Number no. 76 in Winchester. <laughs> and uh, he served as Grand Officer in the United Grand Lodge of England. That sounds awesome. I don't know what it means, but it sounds awesome. And he also served as an editor of the Masonic magazine Freemasonry Today. And if you – there's a website that exists for that for Freemasonry today and you can see writing, uh, by your father and it's very, very fascinating stuff. Lots of esoteric, um, I mean, I guess that's just the nature of Freemasonry, but lots of very high level thinking about consciousness and about religion and, uh, the afterlife. And I just wonder how much this world that your father existed in influenced all the other things, and then perhaps even you? Well, he was very interested in the esoteric, and I think that that formulated his own journey in Freemasonry. There's a lot of Freemasons who disregard a lot of the ritual, a lot of the meaning behind behind the ritual as well. And I think that his what he wanted to do was pursue the esoteric aspects of it. He Anyone can join um, Freemasonry. It doesn't, you don't have to be bound by a religion. And so he found it was an amazing melting pot of different people with diverse ideas, with single belief in this, I guess, in this this other this other realm or this oneness that combine that connects all of us. Um, and that's something that he brought through from his work and also from who he was as a young as a young man and the experiences that he had. And he brought that into his into Freemasonry in his own way and tailored his role as editor to incorporate a lot of that. And in my own life, he got us meditating from a young age. He never, ever told us to pursue any religion or any type of spiritual belief. He would always assert that there was many paths to the top of the mountain and we had our choice to pursue whichever one we wished. I actually started as an atheist. I then became agnostic. 
I had my own experiences and that's when I spoke to my father about where I could go from there and he introduced me to a lot of different religions. I tried Sufism and Wiccan and paganism until I realized that actually I was my own guide and my own path was still the top of the mountain. I didn't have to be part of any religion. And so in that way I did I did find that connection to the one and to and you know, he helped me in that process, but he was no he, he was in no way um, a sort of full influencer of that. He let me guide myself. Tansy, are you are you familiar with uh, Pierre Plantard? He was uh, a figure in kind of French politics who was kind of like considered a hoaxer type and, you know, sort of like believed in certain mystical beliefs as well in a similar way to your father. But is he's the one who kind of claimed that he was responsible for sort of trumping up some of the Priory of Siren stuff and, um, you know, kind of directly criticized Holy Blood, Holy Grail when it came out saying that, you know, it was a work of fiction and he kind of discounted some of the texts that it was based on and kind of said that he... He said he made the story up. Made the story up, basically. But he also has kind of been debunked in many ways as well. And it's just interesting, you know, he's someone who kind of prides themselves on always, you know, getting the last laugh. He he strikes me as that type. I I was just wondering if you were familiar with that situation and his role in any of this because and also like you talk about your father being a mason and kind of having this mind and this uh, fascination with the idea of mysticism and not necessarily religion but just more the idea of what's beyond the veil you know in more of a universal kind of sense like with the meditation and one of the criticisms i think that's been levied against him about this book is that he maybe let some of that stand in the way of seeing the facts. And I'm just wondering how, how how you might respond to that. That was one thing that this Pierre Plantard gentleman said is that, you know, he might have allowed himself to be taken for a ride because he wanted to believe. And we, we run into this all the time on our show. So Pierre Plantard was relevant to the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. And I think that the work that he did there, I think that there was links between between that and what my father did. But my father also had a huge amount of other sources. And I think that the overarching um, idea that he came up with, this holy blood, holy grail, this this holy blood that that ran through time, I don't think has a connection to the mystical um, in that sense. And so I don't think that actually it did affect his work in that way or clouded his judgment. I think he was seen quite clearly and I don't think it even matters that, you know, if Plantar was discredited or in any way, I still think that his theory stands up um, to scrutiny. And I think, again, you know, when you're dealing with historical information, you just cannot be 100 percent sure. So you just have to find what seems right to you. And again, you know, my father was never trying to tell people what to believe. He, that was not his purpose. He was just presenting facts, presenting his interpretation and providing a theory whether you agree with him or not is is up to you. Wow. So your father was really focusing on that divine world. The the he called it many things, at least in interviews that I, I've heard him speaking about it. It's the whatever plane exists just beyond this physical one, where every human being goes to upon death and from from where every person comes before they're born, right? This, um, a lot in throughout all these different religions, you have a place called heaven or Elysium, uh, Hades, the Duat. There's, you know, pick a religion. There's an other world. Um, and so I'm hearing that perhaps through meditation, you personally get to experience that at least in some part. Is that something that anyone listening can, can attempt? Absolutely. So I'm a meditation teacher and I always I try to not bring too much of these deep spiritual ideas into my meditation classes, but they come in naturally. I think that the actual the purpose of meditating and being still, you find a deeper connection to each other and to yourself. And in that place of stillness, you can start to feel and observe a different sense of reality. And whether you wish to pursue that or not, I think meditation is an incredible skill in tapping into that oneness and the connection with all, us all. 
So we have several narrative threads going on right now for this for this interview, and we have so much stuff to explore, and we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to um, explore something that we we mentioned earlier, Matt. I believe you mentioned uh, that Mr. Bajent was a prolific author. Oh, right? yes. So we've explored Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the arguments within. Uh, but as Matt mentioned earlier in the show, Michael Bajent did not write just one book. He was quite a prolific author. Uh, he wrote a book that particularly interests me and probably interests uh, longtime listeners as well, Secret Germany, uh, given uh, which examines the occult practices of the Nazi party in the World War II era. Uh, he also wrote a book that, Matt, you uh, were very interested in. Oh, yes. Nazis are always a hot topic on this show and uh, all of those the beliefs and movements that went behind them, especially magic, man. UFOs and magic and Nazis. That's like some of the most interesting things you can talk about. All right. So another book I really was fascinated by that your father wrote was called Racing Towards Armageddon. And that's not the full title, but that's, you know, the gist of what it was getting into. And in this, he explores religious fundamentalism and uh, that's not a re- that's not relevant at all today, right? And but especially the intertwining narratives of the end times of all the various uh, major religions, like how how they believe the end of the world will come about, and everyone ascending, you know, either into their version of heaven or everyone converting to their religion. And I was listening to an interview with him, and man. It sounded to me like he believed we are getting very close to the end times. 
Are you seeing that at all? Yeah. Well, what was very interesting is that actually when he was out um, in Israel, he saw a photographer who took photos of these very big warehouses. And when he asked the photographer what was in them, he said there are a huge amount of arms owned by the Americans. Um, And this is the place near Armageddon, which is where they believe Armageddon will happen. And I think his work through that book was talking about um, how these fundamentalists are trying to pursue their own aims and bring us towards the end of the world. And with the amount of tragedies that have occurred recently with fundamentalists, you know, pushing against the system constantly, you know, I feel that there is a worry that the end is, is certainly closer than we would want. And what he, he felt was that, you know, he said, is it, is it time perhaps for the religions of the book to throw away the book and seek spiritual experience rather than settling for mere belief? And I think that's where he, he wanted to go. He, he felt that, you know, democracy and the, he felt that faith in people and who we were as humans, he felt that that needed to be stronger than the, these, these archaic sort of beliefs that guide people towards death and doom. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I, we were talking about earlier, getting back to things uh, like the Kabbalah or um, classical mysticism or Sufism, where it's all about that personal connection with the other side, uh, rather than someone standing on a pulpit telling you how it is. I don't know. That, that speaks to me, at least personally. Tansy, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and to speak with our listeners as well. And one thing that we like to end the show on whenever we examine historical allegations or, or any, anything related to the past is we like to ask about the future. So, where do you see the um the the future of research into uh these sorts of theories going over the over the next few years is this is this a done deal or is there more to be discovered so there was a lot of work that he did in the course of his career and knew a lot of very influential people and people who were in positions of of power and he found out a lot of information that is still kept secret and hidden from the public. That's something that I think eventually will come out. And it would be interesting to see how, if it will be some nonfiction thriller mm-hmm. in some sort of exciting way, who knows. That you're, that you're going to write? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very competent at uh, writing things with the books. <laughs> Well, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. It was wonderful to speak with you and about your father and all of these just fascinating mystical things. And it sounds like there's still more out there to be discovered. So this concludes today's episode, but not our show. Matt, Noel, and I will be returning next week uh, with more of the strangest, most bizarre stuff they don't want you to know. But in the meantime, if your question is, how can I find you guys before the next episode, check us out on the internet. We got ways. Yeah. We got means. You can find us on Twitter. We're Conspiracy Stuff there and on Facebook. Same deal. Hey, Tansy, how can people find you and uh, ask you questions if they're interested? So I run my father's website, which is michaelbagent.com. So you can contact me through that website. Yeah, I'll happily answer any questions that you might have. Is there anything else you're getting into that you want to tell people about? Yeah, so I'm actually at the moment in the process of writing a book about the future of the environment. I did a master's in international environmental law, and it's something that's really interesting to me and also talks about a lot of conspiracies in that in that world. Oh, that's awesome. Scary, too. Environmental conspiracies. Uh, I feel like that's, that's going to make me really sad, Tansy. All right. Well, Matt, uh, you know... Gird yourself, get ready, because we're going to have to do an episode on that in the future. Okay, I'm down. And if none of that social media stuff is your bag, you can totally just send us an email with questions, concerns, comments, ideas for episodes, death threats. No, maybe not. But Don't do that. Send them to conspiracy at howstuffworks.com.
Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.